Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside. Suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Things are good, Andrew. It's been a, been a good week of, of Champions League action. Yeah, it really has. This, is, this Champions League has been very, very, very entertaining so far, I would say, the group stages. The much maligned group stages. Because we hear so much about, and, and let's be honest, the knockout phases of the last maybe decade have been unbelievably entertaining. I'm not saying that they haven't, but the group stages are good and are interesting. And particularly when bad teams, sorry, when good teams are going through bad patches, they are, they are very, very engrossing. Yeah, I would agree. And, um, and we're seeing that. It feels, it feels wide open to a certain extent. And um, we're going to talk all about it. We've got a lot to discuss on the Champions League group stages. Also, um, a little bit later on in the podcast, we'll talk about the upcoming El Clasico. Barcelona and Real Madrid hitting each other at very interesting times. And Tarek Panja of the New York Times is going to join us too. The last time we spoke with him was during the Super League crisis. And uh, our conversation with him was fantastic. I'd say of the amount of response that we got to that interview was was really significant. And uh, so we thought now with a lot of interesting things happening, happening in kind of the news sector of the sport, Newcastle takeover, the biennial World Cup idea being proposed by FIFA, um, we thought this was a good time to have Tarek back on the program. So we're hoping to speak with him in uh, in just a little bit. But of course, JJ, like we said, we begin in Europe with the Champions League. Ah. Those nights, those beautiful nights all across Europe. Where do you want to start, my friend? There's a, there were so many games that were really interesting in, in a variety of different ways. I'll defer to you here. Let, let's start at the Wanda on Tuesday night. I think that's the way to go. Liverpool and Atletico Madrid. 3-2, your final. It goes to Liverpool. That's a great away victory for them. It maybe didn't go according to plan. They were up 2-0. And uh, you, you probably were thinking that not necessarily it was going to be a waltz, but at that point you didn't think it was going to get quite as tricky as it did. Uh, but they do escape uh, with a, an important road three points against a very difficult opponent, the defending champions of Spain. Yeah, I think the best way to describe it was an absolutely amazing result. That's three wins from three, nine points. But if not a not a great performance, in fact, a pretty iffy performance, and had certain things not happened in the game. Uh, that went Liverpool's way, mostly the red card for Antoine Griezmann. Uh, Liverpool were were kind of in trouble. Atleti caused Liverpool as much trouble, if not more, than any other opponent this season. I suppose if we were ranking the trouble, the trouble opponents, it would be Atleti f- closely followed by Brentford. I mean, Liverpool have been made a pretty good start to the season. And uh, this was definitely one of those uh, one of those nights where they were made to look uncomfortable. But, you know, I thought about it. And if you if you think about the way Atleti play, they're kind of set up to hurt Liverpool. You know, they sit off and then they at certain segments, once you enter their zone, they surround and tackle you tenaciously. The ball is turned over and then you've got that Liverpool high line, which can be susceptible. And the next thing they're in behind. And only for Allison in the early stages of that game, sorry, early stages, in the first half, Liverpool could have conceivably been 2-0 up and then surrendered the lead 3-2, 4-2. That's how good the quality of chance that Atleti created. It's no wonder that Jurgen Klopp hates the way they play. 
<laughs> yeah. Do I things mean, to make this easier for us. But I, the words of of uh, Graham Hunter are, are rattling around in my head. He said about a month ago that he thought Atleti were a real, real bet to win the Champions League because they have they've got that tenacity, that defensive solidity. Like I said, you get into a certain zone and they're going to surround you and look to, to break on you. But more than that, they've got really, really good attacking players. If you saw the performance of Griezmann before the, before the red card, if you saw Carrasco all through the night and João Felix, they were they were excellent, Andrew. They were really good, and they gave Liverpool a tired time. Now, I I would say Liverpool themselves set up to not obviously not on purpose, but not starting Fabinho, um, not ha- having on the one side having Salah, Keita in front of Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's going to bomb forward. And leaving that, that big gap and hole in behind was really problematic. And yeah, on another night, Atleti win this one, Andrew, comfortably. But it wasn't that night. And there was a, there was a red card, which, look, very, very hard to quibble, quibble with. Um, a challenge that reminded me of Nani against Arbeloa in a Champions League game. I think it was 2013. Was it the quarterfinal or semifinal? Real Madrid versus Manchester United. Remember that one? where he's just trying to control the ball, clearly. But he's not aware of who's around him. And uh, he catches Arbeloa in the, in, the, in the upper abdomen. And it's a right card. And in this case, this was worse because he nearly beheaded <laughs> Roberto Firmino. And it was a red, but there was absolute, it was a total accident. Well, yeah, that's the unfortunate part about it is I think Griezmann, when he realized what he had done, I think even he was surprised. I don't think he was expecting a head to be there. You know, he's clear. You can you can follow his eyes. He's following the path of the yeah. ball. Um, but I mean, but that's there's nothing. Uh, you know. There's nothing in in the um, serious foul play law that says following the ball, your eyes intent. There's none of that. You've endangered the safety of an opponent on the field, and um, and you got to go. And he kind of there was the usual protest you'd expect from an Atleti team from a Simeone managed team, but there weren't really those protests from him. He was. Perturbed, he, looks, he looks surprised at first, but then he, know, maybe that's performative. Yeah, he, and he, he knew was, what he did, and I think he had to have known what was coming. You can't, yeah, sure. you just can't do that. Like I don't know, which was a shame for the not not for the game because it was a superb game, a really really high level game, but it was a shame for him because he was playing in a style of Griezmann pre his move to Barcelona. This, this was, and there's been criticism on his return to Atleti that he hasn't hit the heights yet, but you can't say he didn't do that on Tuesday night. Uh, no, two goals. He scored both their goals. It, this was a weird game in that a couple of the attacking heroes for this game sort of end the night as villains in some way. Like we're talking about Griezmann, who was brilliant in attack, scored the two goals, and he was having an incredible game and then was sent off with a, a hideous challenge. Accidental or not, it is what it is. And then conversely for Liverpool, Naby Keita scored what was probably the greatest goal of his professional career, a volley in a Champions League match. And then he's yanked off at halftime. Klopp is clearly furious with the job that he's done. You mentioned before how, you know, he's partially ultimately responsible for that hole you were seeing in the midfield. He was not doing the things that Klopp wanted in defense. And after 45 minutes, after scoring this great goal, he's gone. Yeah. And just a weird night. Yeah, Klopp did this contradictory thing as well to defend. I mean, managers always defend their players, even when it's obvious what's going on. So he goes, 
uh, no, Naby, Naby played a great game. He did some great things for us. We just needed more cover down the right-hand side. It was nothing to do with Naby. Well, it was something to do with Naby. You yanked him at halftime. It's okay to say that. It wasn't working out defensively. He was putting the spin cycle for the second Griezmann goal by Joao Felix. I mean, Joao Felix looks like a skinny middle schooler. And he held off Keita with, with ease and then, and then spun past him. Uh, brilliant run, which if, if you're a Liverpool fan looking for concerns, how easily Griezmann span into that space past Van Dijk and how far away Van Dijk was, was a concern. How far away Van Dijk was on a couple of occasions from Griezmann would be a little bit of a concern. Now, it's, going to, take, it's going to take Van Dijk a lot longer to come back from an ACL. Those, these things take, they take a lot of time to be back to his full, full speed and full tilt. So that is part of it. The, um, the decisive penalty for Liverpool. Yes. <laughs> the defending from, was it Hermoso? Hermoso. For, well, what's he doing? <laughs> I, it, awful. Like, frankly, daft and unnecessary. Extremely. Un- so let's say that ball. So he, and in real time, when I saw it, I thought legs tangled, harmless, like innocent yeah. mistake. Then you watch it and he lines him up. Like, does he forget where he is? Does he forget the rules? And let's say that that ball comes down and Jota somehow a ball that's dropping out of midair at that speed. Let's say he he plays it perfectly. He's still got a lot of work to do from where he is in the box. It just, it just felt like a moment. Like if you're down six, one and you're just angry, like a defender has just had a bad day and he's frustrated and he's, he sees a ball up in the air and a guy staring at, and he's like, you know what? This is a chance for me to just absolutely level him. (laughs) And you lose your mind for a second, you do it. But in a 2-2 game, in a Champions League group stage match, like and a hanging it, ball, very it's, weird. It's it, and, and he just shoves into him. Like he takes yeah. him out of it. It was, it was crazy. Um, absolutely crazy. Now, I, I, you think of Atleti, you think of discipline defending. That was not that. But equally, Andrew, we had the, an incident at the other end that could have swung it uh, to, uh, to, for Atleti to rescue the game. In the end, I think that it was the right call. I was much more torn on it, but I just can't help. Even though Jota does remind me who the player was for Atletico Madrid. I, I can't remember. Jimenez. That's right. So Jota does have an arm on him, mm. but I'm sorry. Can't he, give penalties I, I think that. Jimenez realizes at a certain point, I'm not going to get to this ball. I feel something on my back. Yeah. I'm going down. Of course. And yeah. I, I think that. I'm, I'm kind of happy that the referee chose to not reward that. I, yeah, I feel I, like maybe it's a penalty that we have seen before. Sure. But it just, if it had been given, we'd be sitting here today saying that it was really weak. Yeah. And it's the kind of penalty the Premier League are, tra- are getting rid of, are, are trying to eradicate. And, and I can see why. Now, in real time, I thought it was a penalty. I was also annoyed at Jota for being wrong side. Mm-hmm. You know, that is an attacker defending a set piece late on. I don't care if that's the case. You've got to get goal side. And if you get goal side, that actually doesn't happen. Because if you watch, Jimenez does exactly what you said. He's not going to get there. And he dives across in front of, of Jota. He, he throws himself in front of him. But um, Jota leaves that option open to the referee. Now, thankfully, I thought there was a decent use of VAR. The referee is convinced it's a penalty. The VAR says, hey, take a look at this. And he goes and he does that. And he says, nah, I can't give that. There's not enough there. And in the end, the right decision is given. Now, that does not negate, like, and for if 
for our Atleti fans that are listening, that does not negate the fact that I think Atleti overall could have won this game. It doesn't change anything, but I just think that specific incident wasn't a penalty and the referee got it right. Yeah. Um, it is unfortunate, I think, with this game because it was it was lining up to be such a brilliant game. And in the end, it still was a very entertaining game, but I kind of would have liked to have seen it 90 minutes, 11 versus 11. It's a couple times this season where Liverpool, you know, they had uh, the same deal with Chelsea. Uh, with the Reese James red card early on in that yeah. one. A couple games this season where I really think so highly of this Liverpool team and they're playing so well. I want to see a normal game against them versus them against some of the other elite teams in Europe. And, you know, we, they have had those games too, but Chelsea, sure. Atletico, I, I would have liked to have seen a full 90 of, of 11 on 11. I actually was quite happy that we didn't see that because <laughs> I do think I do think Liverpool on another night get beaten in this game. But like, look, that's that's not the way football works. Right. It's net you are you're never across a 40, 50 something game season in all competitions going to be perfect. And Atleti have a lot of excellent players. Yeah. They've paid for a lot of excellent players. They pay for a very excellent manager. You know, no, I mean so. when you can bring Suarez off the bench, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. that's that's frightening, certainly. Yeah. Uh one other note from this one. Yeah. So you're watching the game, it ends. And all of a sudden, you see a man in black sprinting down the tunnel. Wasn't it brilliant, Andrew, to see Tom Waits looking so well on the sideline? I thought it was fantastic. Tom Waits, really spry. soccer fan, obviously has great access. And, yeah. and Tom Waits in the middle of the game trying to get the Wanda, trying to get the crowd up. Brilliant, brilliant to see Tom Waits looking very fresh. Yeah, he really, he really did. Um, <laughs> it was actually Simeone, JJ. Get out. But can you believe it? Stop it. So the game ends and he sprints down the tunnel. Klopp is kind of left, I don't know, just, I don't, I don't know, confused. Where, where is the man whose hand I'm supposed to shake right yeah. now? And so it, it seems like it's about to spiral into some kind of controversy. Um, now, this, uh, this is a thing that Simeone does, and he has spoken about it. He said, um, I don't always greet the other coach after the game because I don't like it. It's not healthy for either the winner or the loser. I think of it that way but now when i see him i'll greet him without a problem yeah so i don't think there's any controversy here per se but by the way they don't like the two clubs have a lovely little rivalry brimming it's good it's good thing there's a lot of hatred there they've they stuffed us um in that game which is now subject to huge controversy the last game before covid and, and how it was a super spreader event but we'll park that um and so they don't like each other but I'm curious to get your, like, if you do that in a youth match, if, if a kid won't shake the hand of, of another player, at, like, it's a big deal. You know, I, I, I've always struggled with this convention. Like, you could be knocking the absolute pee out of a guy for 90 minutes. There might be no respect. Things might have got said. And then the convention is you must shake hands with him to show respect after th- the game. So I think with, with players... I mean, yeah, it's nice to think that everyone can shake each other's hand afterwards, but I understand the emotion of being a player in a game where, you know, something physical can happen. And so maybe there's a certain player whose hand you don't want to shake. The mm. managers just shake each other's hands. Okay. Just shake each other's hands. Every, every other manager on earth can do it. So can you, you may not like it. Just do it. I, I, but Yeah. And there's ways of doing it. I, I'm all, I always think of the time uh, in Mourinho's second period at Chelsea, third period at no second period at Chelsea. Uh, where, when he came back and Paul Lambert is manager of Aston Villa and Roy Keane is his assistant and they're sat there at Stamford Bridge and the, 
like Chelsea are winning like 3-1 and Mourinho goes for the shake hands on like the, the 90th minute with like four minutes of stoppage time left. <laughs> and they just look like that to me. That's how you use it. That's how you weaponize the handshaking. But yeah, I think, I think you might be right for the managers. But I do think, you know, if you don't respect the guy, if you don't like a guy, you know, the, the mutual professional respect should have been shown on the field already. Shaking hands afterwards doesn't, doesn't make it so. I'm not, I'm not a big shake hands guy. But this was, pe- heightened, this was heightened, though, because of what you said about the rivalry Klopp had said about Atletico Madrid and their style of play. Uh, he said, do I like it? Not too much, but I like a different style of football. I don't have to like it. It just has to be successful. But in very difficult times for football clubs, they have done an impressive job with signings, have a proper team, yada, yada, yada. Um, so I, I, there's a bit, like you said, there's a bit of an interesting um, European rivalry developing between these two teams. Yeah, it's fun. It is fun. I, I, I will say this, um, you know, if I'm Klopp, I don't like the way they play because we don't tend to do very well against it and, and have struggled against it. And I, I thought Atleti were very impressive the other night. It, wasn't, ju- it wasn't just negative, stodgy. St- you know, they played with a lot of played with a lot of great skill and a lot of flair on the break. Uh, let's continue now, JJ. Let's go to uh, let's go to Amsterdam. Actually, Ajax and Borussia Dortmund um, in one of the more I would say eye opening results from these set of, of midweek matches as Ajax went four nil over the German side um, in, in a and by the way, like I don't know if you saw any of this, if you saw highlights from this, they won four nil. I mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say it felt like it could have been six, seven, eight. Oh yeah. Uh- not to bring it back to, to your own proclivities, but when you watch Ajax now, is this, is this game like, you know, the what might have been game for you when you see Eric Ten Hag on the sideline? Because that football, Andrew, that they play is, it's not that they won 4-0. It's not even that they could have scored six or seven. It's the way they play it, the way they move the ball. It's like a 2019 redo, except with new players. They're fun to watch. There's no question about it. And, and you do have to, I guess, respect that about them. And JJ, I wanted to, I wanted to read you something that I saw from the Who Scored Twitter account about Sebastian Haller. Okay. Uh, in this Champions League campaign thus far, so what's it been? Three games. Uh, Three games. Thir- Thirteen shots, six goals, eight key passes, two assists, fourteen aerial duels, one, two man of the match awards, and a rating of nine point one four. JJ in Europe. So far, he's one of the best strikers there is. It's incredible. It, it is incredible. And it goes to show you, uh, I think there was two examples from the Champions League. He is the most striking example. But there's actually maybe three examples that the, the Premier League, we have this kind of, it's not an amnesia, but when players go away or it hasn't worked out for them in the Premier League, we think uh, just not good enough. And it's not true. There are, there are factors, there are personal factors, there are tactical factors, there are managerial factors, there's team factors. And um, Haller is as, about as big a bust as West Ham have ever had. He was their record signing at centre forward. What did he score? 10 goals, something like that, in 40 games. Um, two was assists, I think. Many? I'd have to look. Yeah, 10 goals seems like a lot, actually. Um, but I think it was, because he didn't get a hat-trick at one point. So that would account for almost a third of those, those goals. Um, <laughs> But look at, look at Haller, look at Ed, uh, Ed Dzeko as well. 
Like, yeah, but Jacko was a good player at Manchester it, City. He was, but he's been literally forgotten about since he left the Premier League, and he's done great things at Roma and now, uh, you know, playing for Inter. But uh, look at Dusan Tadic. Dusan Tadic was allowed to leave the Premier League for peanuts, so twelve million. He's the weird one in this because obviously, when you when you talk about what you're discussing, he's someone you'll think of. But it, I don't think that he was viewed as any kind of failure at Southampton. Like, no. I think most people thought he was a, a good player. No, uh, he he was. But how, when you think of some of the needs of the major teams, the top six teams, or even say an Everton, you know, who spent money all over the place on this very creative position, that he was allowed to just disappear into the ether for what in... <laughs> I mean, it's it's the change you find down the back of a couch in the pre- in Premier League terms. It's crazy to me that that happened. Well, Ajax is weird because they're such. I mean, look, they're such a historic club. They're a huge club, but because of the league where they play, like, let let me just ask you straight out. Maybe this is an ignorant question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So we view because we're Premier League centric. Sebastian Haller going from West Ham to Ajax as a, what's he doing? Like Dusan Tadic from Southampton to Ajax. Why is he doing that? Why is he leaving the Premier League to go to that league? But are there still players who will view that as not a step down, but a step up because of what Ajax's reputation is? 100%. 100%. There are players who look at it, you know, I'm going there. All right. It's not brilliant, uh, brilliant league, but this is Ajax Amsterdam. Uh-huh. There's all that tradition with, with them, the stadium they play in, the stadium that, you know, that the person that it's named after who we've discussed many times in this podcast, Johan Cruyff, everything that goes with them. And also a team that is now finding a way to be effective in European competition and be in the Champions League. It's kind of a good deal. And I also sometimes, you get, you get I sometimes wonder, JJ, if, if Celtic look at Ajax and think, why can't that be us? Oh, oh, Andrew, like I'm, I'm in contact with a lot of, you know, Glasgow Celtic fans. I know a lot of them and like, they want this model. They want this, this kind of view production model that they had once upon a time, but a long time ago. And they want that. They absolutely want to be there. And they've also got the support and the, uh, they should have the revenue base to be able to do it. And they haven't. They've, they have, they bought well from abroad Celtic. Yes, but they've never, they've never done this. I mean, look at this forward line. You have, um, you have Anthony, uh, Bergui, Tadic, Haller, um, and they've completely, well, more or less rebuilt their, their back four. They've rebuilt their, they were absolutely gutted after 2019. And now look where they are. Three wins from three, a couple of years later in the Champions League. It's brilliant. And you got to give Ten Hag a lot of credit for this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything else on this one? Or shall yeah, we just, continue? Just, I thought Marco Rose was the Borussia Dortmund manager was very, succinct describing his feelings after the game in one word one german word which we can say in german because this is an english-speaking podcast but we couldn't say it in english hmm. Scheiße. um and he one startling thing for me is that rose does suggest that dortmund gave not gave up but collapsed after the second goal this is what he said our body language was like we were out of the game after conceding the second goal it was a matter of conviction we have to work on that we made too many mistakes, too many simple mistakes. When we were in the last third, we gave the balls away too easily and used too little movement to get into the crucial spaces. Too little movement is not something you usually accuse Borussia Dortmund of. But um, that, was, that was a bad night. Uh, PSG, JJ, really fun one against Leipzig. They come back, they win it 3-2 thanks to a Messi-Panenka. 
Uh, you know my policy on Panenka's, JJ. If one of my players ever did it, they'd be yanked right off the field. This I'm one sold. would this one would have been difficult to do that. Uh, <laughs> but I do have a policy, and Leo, I'm sorry, it's You're time out. to go. Yeah, I, I can imagine a stern-faced Andrew delivering that line to the greatest player we've probably ever seen. Um, Leo, hi. So I have a pretty clear policy. It's in the lunchroom on the meeting board. Uh, it says no Penyankas. Yeah. You broke that. And let me tell you, friend, this is where it ends. Have a seat. You're done. Uh, but yeah, Lionel Messi, two goals on the night for PSG. Uh, he's, he's coming alive. And uh, I, I know you, there's this continuing question about PSG and what they're doing right now. This, I don't know if we call it an experiment or what, but this, you know, Neymar, Messi, Mbappe, triumvirate and how dominant they should be. And there's, it hasn't quite looked maybe the way we thought it would. Maybe we thought we'd be seeing more five ones or four nils or score yeah. lines like that. It hasn't been like that, both even in their own league. Uh, they've been eking by in some of these games. But I will say this, we should all be so lucky to struggle like PSG are struggling. They've won 11 of their 14 games in all competitions this season, 11, two and one. Um, and they've won all seven matches played at home, outscoring their opponents in those games, 19 to six. So whatever, you know, their expectations are through the roof and rightfully so it, it's a, it's a collection of players, the likes of which we rarely ever see if ever, um, but they are still winning and they are still playing well. And it makes you think, okay, if they're, if they're still getting wins at the rate that they're getting them now, where will they be come February, March, April, when presumably they've had time to gel and maybe, maybe then we'll start to see the sort of score lines we thought we'd be seeing right away. Yeah. I just think you, you can't get away from the fact that against better opposition than Leipzig, you're going to have a problem coming back from putting yourself in, in losing positions for how you can't dig yourself out of every game, Andrew, it, it's going to be harder. I know they've already beaten Manchester city, but we saw how good city were in that game. And if you have city versus PSG in the semifinal, I'm taking the Jamie Carragher line on this on Paramount plus they won't PSG won't be able to do this against the better sides. I, I don't see it. Um, you can't keep going to the well like that. And eventually your luck runs out a little bit. And that's not to say that anything about Messi's skill or ability or the Pinyanka or the comeback is, is luck. But when you put yourself in a hole against good teams, it's harder to dig out. Um, w w there was one funny moment on, on one, of the, one of the Leipzig goals. I think it was the second goal or maybe it was the first goal. So Messi is in a left, uh, left midfield position and he's walking, Andrew. And he sees the guy ahead of him is about to run in run in and is open and is going to score. And he does something that I do. So I live in Brooklyn and there's lots of parents with kids on those, you know, those push scooters. Okay, and, yeah. But these kids seem too young to be careening down the streets on them. And often these kids are like yards, a hundred yards, 50 yards ahead of their parents, right? Heading towards an intersection on the pavement, the crosswalk. And I get so uptight about it. So right as they're heading towards the crosswalk, I look across my shoulder. I just scan to see how far away the parent is because I'm genuinely scared that they're going to get in and go and get crushed by a bus or something. Jeez. So as they get to the crosswalk, usually these kids are sat, not usually, always they're savvy enough that they stop their scooters. They're, they are in control. But my mind is worst case scenario. So I break into this little trot 
this little trot. And then I realized, ah, it's okay. That's what Messi did. He sees the guy. He sees the danger. He sees the child about to be crushed at the intersection by a bus. And he does this little trot. And then he just says, no, I can't be bothered. And sure enough, Leipzig score. So thankfully, the results in your situations were not as disastrous as Messi's. Correct. Because the equivalent of them scoring would be a child getting well. Yeah, we don't. We my 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 point is more that the little the little trot that Messi did, the feigning of interest for like three seconds, and he's like, I can't, I can't be bothered. And that I do that on the street because I'm afraid of children on scooters. I also, for, I'm afraid at some point in their lives they'll form a scooter gang and just rule the neighborhood with abandon. That could happen. Um, in addition to Messi in this game, we should mention too, Kylian Mbappe scored a great goal oh. for PSG. I mean, just kind of like a classic Mbappe type of Re- goal. Got read the situation, read the defender's intentions and sight, totally wrong-footed Galassi in the goal. It was, it was brilliant. It was such a good goal. And, yeah. and that was, you're right, that was vintage him. Now, however, something happened with him near the end of this game that makes you wonder. So he, PSG earned a penalty when this was still, it was 3-2 in stoppage time. Uh, he had a chance to put it away with a penalty and he skied it over the bar. Mm. And uh, you just wonder now, okay, this guy, you know, between what happened at the Euros, another missed penalty here in the Champions League. Um, he had a- that penalty in the, um, in the Nations League, that competition they like to sneak in front of us every now and again. And he, he, had, yeah. a, he had a penalty, but it wasn't that convincing. I th- he scored it. I if I remember, it wasn't convincing. I might have that wrong. Maybe it was better, but at least he's, yeah. Maybe it's becoming a thing for him, a bit of a, a mental, a mental tick. Yeah, I just wonder. They've got there's a lot of guys there who can do the penalties. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you know, I understand them wanting him, him to, to you know, either I don't know if it's boosting his stats, boosting his confidence, just seeing the ball go in the net. But he was playing well. He scored a goal in this game. I don't know that he needed it, um, but yeah, just something to kind of keep an eye on quickly on Leipzig. Um, and Jesse Marsh, tough result for them. They played well against a really difficult opponent on the road, and uh, they are struggling in the Champions League and in the Bundesliga as well, where they only have three wins from uh, eight games. They're eighth right now in the table. Yeah. So it has not been a great start. Defend- defending is a real problem for them. You can't say that they don't have that verve or organization going forward. I mean, look at Angelino's pass for, was it in Kunku's goal? That little cross. The way he hit that ball, by the way, is so unique. Usually you see that whipped, but he just, he kind of, I don't know, was it like he floated it right in? It was, uh, but, you know, it, it didn't have a high trajectory. Yeah, but uh, Jesse Marsh looked pretty crestfallen. We also had a, another bad night as uh, Tyler Adams made a mistake in the lead up to a goal. By the way. And then he did apolog- the thing that he, he Bruno Fernandez did afterwards and apologized oh. on social media. Yeah, he did it on an Instagram story, which saved us all having to read everything that Bruno had written, uh, you know, that, that piece from the Torah length. Uh, it was it was Tyler Adams at least gave us brevity but I don't think he should have to apologize there was a lot of things happened before the ball went in the net it shouldn't be oh Tyler Adams gave the ball away in that position it's definitely a goal and that kind of speaks to um, to Leipzig's defending problems by the way Tyler Adams also played a role in Leipzig scoring their second goal when he won possession now again like with the goal he I guess had a hand in conceding a lot of things had to happen after Adams won that ball back but he Played a role in uh, in Leipzig's second, so but yeah, he apologized and uh, you know he's our guy, and uh, I felt bad that he was feeling bad, but yeah, he didn't have a bad game to be honest. You know, he did a lot of good things. 
it's just that's the one that always overshadows. Yeah. A um, couple others to mention here. JJ, obviously, Manchester United. Um, we have to talk about what happened here. Yeah. This was just, you know, we, we've made jokes over the last year about Ole constantly getting to the edge of the cliff. He's about to fall, and then some force of nature pushes him back to safety. And this game was sort of like a microcosm of his entire tenure at Manchester United. They're down 2 0. You know, you're, you're go on Twitter and just type in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and it's it's just pure vitriol. He's booed. He's booed off at halftime. And then they score three straight and they win in dramatic fashion. And it's, you know, happy days are here again. And, and everyone it's it's all love. And it's, I don't know how sustainable that model is. I would suggest you might already be seeing that it's not sustainable, that Manchester United are underachieving for what we thought they would be. But funny, in Mar- terms of in terms of an individual night, just the singular game. What a thrilling game to have been a part of if you were a Manchester United fan, certainly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Mark Critchley, our friend, <laughs> he, he, he echoes your thoughts. Is this, is this sustainable, I write, for the 1037th time? <laughs> Which is so true. Um, the, the winning goal was such... I know it's a great Ronaldo header, but I've come to expect that now from him. It's not even up there with my favorite Ronaldo header, which was the one uh, for Juventus against Sampdoria in 2019. That was, he had like Jordan-esque hang time on that one. But this was a great header too. What was truly great was the delivery from Luke Shaw. It's such a brilliant cross. He's left it right on a plate for him. Now, Atalanta were out on their feet. And Atalanta are a, they're a team that are just so amazing. They throw so many people going forward that United scoring three to come back and win three, two is not a crazy, crazy thing uh, to happen against Atalanta it, it can, against Gasparini's teams. This can absolutely happen. Um, but this is, I mean, this isn't obviously sustainable. You can't keep playing like this. You can't keep having like Harry Maguire, popping up for the second goal, you know, at the back post for the equalizer. That th- th- Things like that can't continue to happen. Um, it's not sustainable. Uh, in lieu of any other plan, you can't have this kind of chaos factor at United. But they did play better than they did at the weekend against Leicester, so I guess that's something. Well, yeah, a couple of things stand out to me from what we've seen. First of all, I think we have to talk a, at least briefly about Marcus Rashford. Um, since he's been reintroduced to the side, he scored against Leicester, scored uh, in this one, both of which both goals were really good goals. And, you know, I think so many moves were made in attack for them. They have so many players there. We were wondering, is there is there still a spot for him? There is. There is. He's still an excellent player and he's still so young. His speed, his finishing ability. I, I think as he works his way back into the side and they figure out how to use him alongside Cristiano and, and Mason Greenwood and Bruno Fernandez. I mean, there's, there's a lot to work with and it's going to be a challenge for Solskjaer to figure it out as these guys are, are trying to figure it out themselves. But I think Rashford, I, I do think he's got to play if he's healthy. Yeah. I'm not so sure that's going to happen. Um, Andrew, uh, I, I agree with you. He's been good since he's been reintroduced into the side, but yeah, I don't well, so know about he, that. Here's kind of why I say that because I do believe, so I saw, Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville kind of arguing about Manchester United and what's wrong with them. Carragher seems to think it's, it's a Ronaldo problem in that the residual effect of playing him means you've got to play Pogba in a position where he's not suited to play. And it's, it's all, that's the root of the problems. It begins with Ronaldo. I tend to side more with the Gary Neville side of the argument, which is that 
Neville is, was essentially saying that they just need some of these guys to work harder. Like it's not, it's not a question of guys that can't do it. Solshire has to just get them to do it. And I think Rashford to me is somebody who can do that, who, who is. So he's going to do enough. the run and Ronaldo won't do then. Is that what you're telling I'm me? Saying, but, but a lot of teams have players, like it's not unusual for your number nine to also not get back and defend. Like, I don't think, I don't think Romelu Lukaku is a player who's asked to get back and defend for Chelsea. So if Solskjaer, he's got to get the other guys. Rashford to me is someone who can do that, who can get back and, and, and be willing to defend like that. It's not just about getting back. It's about getting forward too, when you don't have the ball. And like, as Michael Cox pointed out, I've already on, on, on Monday's pod, we read out what he said about, um, Leicester finding it easy to play through the centre because Ronaldo is essentially a passenger in that phase of the game. Brendan Rodgers said it too. Brendan Rodgers to- uh, basically said in his post-match comments how it was easy for them to play it through the centre because they, they don't have anyone pressing. And who is that person who leads the line and needs to do more in the press? That's Ronaldo. Ronaldo, to his credit, in the last five minutes of this game when they were 3-2 up, was back defending and had a clearance in the box. You know, but that as much as anything, that was about, you know, that's that's last minute defending. That's work. That's good. And it needs to be done, et cetera, et cetera. But the the press stopping the opposition playing through you and playing through your midfield. And I agree with you, Andrew, that midfield is not it's not good. And there's other guys in there that need to work as well. But he went back to the Scott and uh, the Scott and McTominay, the Scott McTominay and Fred, the McFred Mm -hmm. formation last night. He left Pogba out. And it still didn't work. And you can't, one thing is you can't criticize Fred or Scott McTominay for hard work. You just simply can't. There'll be hard work, but it doesn't work. It's still not working in there. And partly that's because uh, it has, it's too easy to play through Manchester United. Now, what does this mean for the weekend? Well, Paul Scholes thinks that even at full time after the 3-2 win, this is the comment he had to make on BT Sport. He just kind of, scornfully shook his head and said, go and do that against Liverpool on Sunday. See what happens. Imagine Jurgen Klopp watching that at home, rubbing his hands together. I was curious what you thought of that, because I don't actually agree with that. I think if you look at Liverpool, tough night on Tuesday against Atleti, and, you know, maybe we're seeing little weaknesses, little, little, little holes in the armour, and United have come off this 3-2 win, at, and United are at home, you know, things are okay in the garden again. And they're playing against a team that they know, albeit not the last time Liverpool visited Old Trafford, they battered United, but they're visiting, they're, you know, Liverpool tend not to do great at Old Trafford. You know, it's under Klopp. I'm not I so look sure at, I, I look at that game. I, I hear all the qualifiers that you're laying down, but I look at that game and think Liverpool are the better team and they're in better form. I would expect Liverpool to win that. Hmm. I'm not so sure. I think that could be a draw or United could sneak a win. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I mean, look, anything's possible. But my when I sit down to watch that game, my expectation will be that Liverpool should win this. Well, Liverpool are the kind of team that United should be good against and have to be good against. But in the way Liverpool set up, they're going to have most of the ball. They're going to play a high line, even regardless of the fact that it's at Old Trafford and they're away from home. It won't matter. Liverpool won't change things. And United will sit in, they'll soak up pressure. And if they can do things on the break, Andrew, with the, with the quality they have, I mean, it might be a fun game. Yeah, I, I would expect it to be fun, certainly. Mm. Um, I just think 
highly of Liverpool right now. Certainly I mean, more. So than, do I. I'm just I'm just United. making the case for the opposition. Hmm. What are you up to? There's always an ulterior motive. Is this some sort of self-defense mechanism? Is this you no. placating the United fans well, to think really you're placating. biased? I mean, how many wins have Liverpool under Klopp at Old Trafford? Add them up. It's not one, I think, in the last how many. So wins in the league, I mean. So there hmm. we go. That's how I feel. Um, let's see. Anything else from these Champions League games? I had a couple quick notes I wanted to mention. No, you go ahead. Give me your notes. Uh, Chelsea, 4-0, but it comes at a cost. Lukaku and Timo Werner both get hurt in this one. Uh, Werner I thought was that was what... strange, Andrew, because pre-game, Tuchel was talking about how he thinks uh, Lukaku has played too many games and is tired. And then he starts him. You know, it's not like they're short of options. And it's Malmo, and right. it's at home. Wasn't that the time to give him a rest, give him a break? Yeah. Um, it seemed like Tuchel... He kept kind of referring to Lukaku being overused for Belgium. Um, okay, well, give him a break. You've got an opportunity. You've got yeah. more than enough attacking talent against Malmo. Uh, this is from Sky Sports. They write, with five games to come over the next 17 days, Tuchel will be glad the Blues' opponents do not include a side in the top half of the Premier League and in Europe. Uh, the only team they will face is a, a, a return game against Wednesday's beaten opponents malmo in the in the champions league but i guess their other opponents in the premier league are um bottom half so if they're without these guys for that entire stretch they should like you just said chelsea have a lot in the tank they should still have enough to get results in those games but that's that's unfortunate for them certainly yeah they got norwich in the league on saturday they've got they've got southampton in the afl cup on the tuesday so they're going to rest players there anyway then they've got uh, Newcastle away on October 30th and then Malmo at home and then Burnley and they don't play a top half team until they uh, play Leicester on November the 20th. Um, the team that you are imminently bored with, Bayern Munich, uh, they do win. And I wanted to mention that Robert Lewandowski has now scored 200 goals across all club competitions since the start of the 17-18 season. That's 200 goals in 194 games. That's that's a lot. ridiculous. A lot of goals. Ridiculous. And then finally, JJ Barcelona finally scored a goal in the yeah, Champions League, and it was enough go. for them to win. And it was yeah. from a defender in Gerard Pique. Teased them up nicely for the weekend. Yeah, uh, Barcelona's first goal this Champions League season. That's the longest in terms of match days that the club has taken to score in a single Champions League campaign, as you would expect. I, I can't envision any scenario where it would have taken them. And Dest, and Dest again finds himself in a, in a right wing position, not a full back position. Hello. And played very well to the point where it caught Danny Alves's attention. And I saw Danny Alves uh, talking about how bright he thinks Sergio Dest's future is uh, at Barcelona. So that's a nice endorsement to get. It is indeed a nice endorsement to get. And it's, uh, I wonder if Greg is at home, Triple G is at home with a glass of wine, stroking his chinny chin chin, thinking about maybe uh, Dest on the right, Dest as a winger. We've had he, this conversation I, off air. We had you it made, off air. You made the same noise. Because, because it's interesting. And I think he, I think it is something he's got to think about. I mean, we, talked on the podcast after the U.S.'s win where Desk scored the goal but was kind of culpable in the one they conceded that he's there because of what he brings in attack not defense and it happens to be a moment in time where the U.S. has options at that right back position now it comes down to whether or not you think okay is Reggie Cannon 
ready to step in immediately in World Cup qualifying and, and beyond and be Yed, the right Yedlin. back? Right. It, could it is, it is it still Yedlin who can hold that position down? At some point, we think Brian Reynolds will come into the fold, although we're certainly not at that point yet. But we are in a moment of time where if they want to move Dest further up, they can, they can try it. I, I wouldn't necessarily be against it. But then you're also now talking about either kind of reshaping your formation or who are you going to take off? I mean, is Eunice Musa come off? Uh, does Gio Reyna come off? Um, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice somebody who's already in a more forward attacking role. So, but I, I wouldn't be against seeing it. I would not be against seeing it. I guess that leads into a, a nice little segue, JJ, for this weekend. El Clasico, Barcelona, Real Madrid. This is a big one early on in the season. As um, right now, you look at the table, Real Madrid are second behind Real Sociedad, three points back, but they do have a game at hand. Uh, Barcelona sits seventh, also uh, only eight games played. A lot of the teams around them are up at nine, uh, but only five points back of Sociedad and only two points back of Real Madrid. So, you know, you hear that Barcelona are seventh, you think, oh, what's up with that? But they're actually, they're right there and could be ahead of them, depending on how things go this weekend. And uh, JJ, you know, we keep talking about Barcelona and like the the dire financial situation they're in. Uh, the performances are down. Do they not like this manager? Is is Joan Laporta trying to get rid of this guy? I'll say this about Barcelona. Like I've continued to say, there are still great players there, yada, yada. People are probably sick of hearing me say that. The one thing I will say, how terrible and dire can your situation truly be when you have not one, but two players with billion dollar, billion euro release clauses on your team. That's not a bad starting point. No, no, it's not. Uh... That tells you really young players, extraordinary talent. Uh, so like, okay, they're in a transition phase right now, but I don't know. I, I still, I wonder a little bit about the notion that we've talked about that Barcelona are heading into some vortex where they're going to qualify for Champions League some years. They're not in others, and that's going to be how it is for the next, you know, for this generation. Maybe I don't. I I'm not there yet. I still. You know, I, I. They don't have to win La Liga every year, but I'm. I'm not ready to say that. I don't think the expect that the expectation should be lowered that much for them. Yeah, what I'm wondering about is not so much them, but their opposition and Karim Benzema. That is a very very interesting one for me. So he's coming into this game. Uh, in La Liga with nine goals and seven assists, red hot form, kind of become the main man. Well, not kind of, is the main man at Real Madrid now. He is out of all the various shadows that once surrounded him. He is the head honcho at Real Madrid. And I'm wondering if he can make this classical his own. Not to mention that the trial in France involving Mathieu Valbuena, um, uh, and Kareem Benzema, who obviously isn't going to be present in court, that began this week. So that's another interesting um, little subtext for Kareem Benzema ahead of this El Clasico. Uh, yeah, yes, I would say so. Um, that's that, off the field. But you are right. In terms of on the field, he has taken the reins. Like he has taken the responsibility of being the next great Real Madrid player, and he's he's run with it. Um in all competitions this season, six, that's 16 games so far, 13 goals, nine assists. Spectacular. Really spectacular thus far from him. Should be a fun one this weekend. Last note on Ansu Fati, who got, I don't even know if I said his name. He's the guy I was referring to as being one of the two Barcelona players with a billion euro release clause. 
Um, 15 goals for Barcelona, three assists in 48 games since his senior debut. He's still just unbelievably young. Um, so this should, it should be fun. I'm, I'm, this is for Barcelona, I think much more so than Real Madrid. It's a measuring stick game. And I'm really curious how this one will, will play out for them. Should be, should be interesting. No question about it. Uh, all right. I'll tell you what, let's take a, a quick break. When we come back on the other side, there's a lot to get to. We talked about some of the news and notes happening around the world of football, the biennial world cup, the Newcastle takeover. There's a lot to discuss. And Tarek Panja of the New York times uh, is kind enough to do that with us next. You won't want to miss that conversation more caught offside still to come. Oh, back now on caught offside JJ. We mentioned this at the top of the show, how back during the, uh, the super league uh, and all of the chaos that took place within, in the end, what was it like a 72 hour period of chaos uh, but amongst that chaos, we did multiple shows in that window. And one of them featured Tarek Panja of the New York Times. And the response that we got to that interview was so overwhelmingly positive during what was kind of a dark time for the sport. Um, and so now whenever you know news and notes and things like that are happening around the world of soccer, he is, of course, one of the people that we love to speak with most. And he's with us once again to talk about a few different issues happening right now in soccer. Tarek Panja from the New York Times. What's up, man? How are you? Uh, yeah, not bad. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, we appreciate you making some time. Um, we, we had initially, when we reached out to you, we kind of want to talk about the Newcastle situation, and we will certainly do that. But within the last couple of days or so, this biennial World Cup, this every two-year World Cup idea, seemed like it was gaining steam. It seemed like FIFA were going to push this through come hell or high water. And uh, I, I just, I know there's a lot of fans out there that are really concerned about this. I don't get the sense from at least the people we interact with on this show, I don't get the sense that a lot of the fans want this. And I'm kind of wondering what is the state of the biennial world cup right now? It is. That's a very good question. I suppose it is again in this discussion stage, but it's not really a discussion in some parts. I describe it as maybe a, a shouting stage. FIFA initially were, were talking or preaching to the converted. They were talking to, you know, Africa, for example, first. And when you talk about confederation like that, in a sense, that is almost a subsidiary of FIFA. FIFA essentially took over the African Football Confederation about a year ago because of internal issues there. Uh, and the leadership of national FAs in, on that continent have pretty much been doing FIFA's bidding and have been sort of nodding in agreement for, for, for political reasons as much as sporting reasons. And, and, and that, that was always going to be the case with this, where, where it was always going to be tricky was with Europe, um, both um, UEFA, the European Confederation, the, the clubs, you know, it's without doubt, no disrespect to any other part of the world, the, the, the global club game is centred in Europe, um, and, and that's the, the, the power base of that, and, and the leagues, um, by, by the same token, are extremely powerful. Um, and, and they've been wholly opposed to that uniformly, be it, be it the UEFA, be it the leagues, be it the clubs, and even the often current players and coaches who are still active um, in the game at the moment. FIFA has enlisted a group of former players, very famous people, but they don't play the game anymore and they are wearing mm -hmm. FIFA t-shirts when they're talking on behalf of FIFA. So, you know, unsurprisingly, that they've been quite positive and, and some of the people who haven't been quite so positive, haven't been given the airtime by FIFA to, to, to talk about this. 
Um, this week um, has been particularly interesting. There was a FIFA Council meeting on, on Wednesday. Uh, but before that, on Tuesday, um, Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, entered, you know, I suppose, the lion's den over Zoom um, and um, uh, sort of discussed the, 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 the plans for the reform of the calendar led by the Banya World Cup with the 55 uh, national association heads, and he was given a torrid time. One after another, they, they rebuked him personally, some of them, and rebuked the plan. And in, in many instances, it was like, you know, why are you taking, a, why are you taking away from us in order to, to do this? Where's, the, where's all the rationale? Uh, there's, Gianni says, yeah, we're doing the sporting um, side now, the, how it would look and how it worked. And then we're going to discuss the finances. We're still, we're still figuring it out where the financial impact will be both um, on, on the tournament and on, on, on the rest of the game. But he was also pushing for a vote on December the 20th. They were like, hang on a minute. If none of this has been worked out, why are we having a vote on December the 20th? Mm -hmm. um, and then he was given pretty much a stark warning not, not in so many words, not so um, explicitly, but reading between the lines, uh, both from the, the Nordic associations and also, I believe, from the, the, the UEFA president, Alexander Seferin, who described if this went to a vote, there could be severe consequences. And the Nordic uh, federations said, we will have to figure out where we sit in the football landscape. All this to me is mood music to you push us so far, we will leave FIFA. Yeah. And that's where we are. And I think that focused the minds ahead of this FIFA Council meeting that took place on, on Wednesday, where Gianni Infantino had been expected to get an agreement to take this reform package over a biennial World Cup for men and women and a change of the, the calendar, like two, two blocks of national team football, etc. All of this is small beer compared, let's be honest, to the Men's World Cup, given that it's 93% of FIFA's income every two years, um, to take it to, the, to this vote on December the, 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 the 20th. And he pulled back from the brink. I, I was reading your tweets and uh, Infantino made an appeal for the children. This is for the children that were doing it. Uh, I was touched, but but really, what is what is the driving force behind this? Just to have World Cup revenues every two years? Is it really just that simple? It's, it's, it's very hard to kind of look beyond this. This th there is that, and then there's also look. He he he. For me, you have to look at the psychology of the man as well. I think in a way, he he appeared from relatively nowhere. I mean, he had a senior role in European football, but he was never discussed at that time as the next or as a future FIFA president. Mm -hmm. He was in UEFA, Secretary General, good job, but, but not the leader of world football. Um, May 2015 happens, a bunch of people get arrested, FIFA nearly closes down, and that pretty much shakes the, the sort of kaleidoscope. And, and this man emerges as the FIFA president, you know, he then is there in this really powerful position and he's kind of really enjoyed the power it seems like he loves being photographed with presidents i mean real presidents not not presidents of sports organizations 
you know, be it several visits with Donald Trump or Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, Paul Kagame in, in, in Rwanda, um, you know, he, he, there is this sense of, you know, I'm, I'm a man of substance and I want to be shoulder to shoulder with, with these people. And, and I think with that comes a degree of legacy. Right. I, I want to do something. Because if you think about it, it must be quite boring being the FIFA president compared to, say, what he was doing at UEFA. UEFA have the Champions League, club competitions, Europa League, and then this great Euro. So there's always something to do. The FIFA president has this enormous tournament, but it's the biggest, uh, most popular sports event in the world, including the Olympics, I'd say. But it's every four years, and he's young. You know, we need something to do. So we've seen a lot of kind of missteps about first it was going to be this Club World Cup. You know, and I remember being in Colombia in, in, in Bogota in 2018 in March, where he, he, he said to the council, guys, uh, you've got to sign this paper. I'm not going to tell you who it's with, but I've been promised $25 billion. I've got it. And the deal has to be done in 60 days. I, I've signed an NDA. I can't tell you who it's with, but it's for these Club World Cups. But let me do it. And he had his pants pulled down. You know, they said absolutely no chance. Certainly Europeans were saying, what? What Club World Cup? 25 billion with, with who? What about, you know, champion? You know, so, so that happened. And there's been other kind of promises and ideas. Right. And now we've lighted on this biennial World Cup, you know, it suddenly appeared in, in, in May um, of, of this year by the, the Saudi FA, uh, you know, figly for FIFA perhaps. Um, and again, it's being rushed through. Like, we need to do it, we need to do it, we need to do it. December 20th, we have to have a vote. And it feels like another idea. And again, headlong rush straight into a concrete wall. Uh, so th there is the psychology a little bit of, of, of the man. And then in terms of what, what there is, yes, um, again, he hasn't shown us the finances. People I've spoken to, there is no way that it will be double. You, you have it twice, so it will double. It doesn't work like that. There is finite commercial money, the finite TV money, and then the appeal of something that is not as rare as it once was is, is, um, is an important factor here. But, but it would be more if you add, I don't know, say it's worth six billion now, we add, add another three billion, say, add them, you know, three and a half, maybe you get to eight billion for two rather than six right. for one. You know, my maths aren't, aren't great. You know, you know what I mean. I know it, what you mean. It, it would be a bit more, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be double. So there's that stuff, and and then there is the 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 kind of politics of football. How do you become FIFA president? You become the FIFA president by promising 211 national associations something, and most of them are small. But all of them have the same voting rights. So Guam, um, you know, an island nation of God knows, you know, thousands of people will have will have the same vote voting rights as Brazil, two hundred million, same as USA, Germany. So the, the, these are all SOPs. This is all electioneering often as well. This is a structure of football. And again, for me, it speaks to something that really needs to be looked at again, torn down and started from scratch. Because to me, it seems. Um, outrageous in a way that clubs who employ all these players, whether they're in Europe or Brazil or Asia or wherever, have no say over what happens. Um, the leagues have no say. Players' unions have no say. And then suddenly, you know, Bangladesh decides 
what's going to happen. And no offense to Bangladesh, you should have a say, but but you know, uh, Barcelona doesn't have a say. To me, that that we might need to relook at how decision making works in in football. And this is a structural problem, not just at FIFA, at regional level, at the confederations too. Um, so it's a long long way of saying, um, yeah, money's a very important, probably the most important part of this. But again, one of you know perhaps ego of control, rivalry, and football politics. Tarek, something I'm wondering about with this, you know, so thinking about it a little bit in terms of what happened with the Super League. So you have this outrageous idea; it explodes in a, in a ball of fire, it doesn't come to fruition. But in the end, certain changes are made that do placate some of these clubs. Champions League is altered in some way. What is, is there an equivalent to this? We've got this outrageous idea, biennial World Cup. Right now, UEFA is putting up resistance, Conmebol as well. Probably, I would say at this moment, doesn't look like it's going to happen. What is, what comes out of this in the end? Is there some sort of compromise that we should be looking forward to? Yeah, often there has to be something, I guess. I agree the calendar needs to change. I'm not a big fan of the current calendar. You know, for example, you had a situation here where, um, the European season started in late August, early September, and within two weeks it was stopped for 10 days for, for national team football. Mm-hmm. After the pandemic, fans have not been in the stadiums and then suddenly they're in and then it's, it's frozen again for, 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 for these qualifiers. Some of them aren't particularly appealing. Um, and then we're going to have these blocks. I, I agree with Wenger on this. There's way too many blocks uh, of national team football that... In, they're interspersed in the, into the league season. So something needs to give. I don't know what the answer is because apparently broadcasters do not like the idea of one single block. They think the the, the eyeballs will go. I, I personally, you know, if you ask me, I actually like it. Anything that is 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 linear and you can build a story as a journalist, mm-hmm. I think is great. Um, I'm, I'm looking at it from a very selfish point of from yeah. my point of view, is that you can follow the storyline and then they'll have a climax, etc. TV um, probably likes that too. Sorry? TV probably likes that concept well, too. Yeah, the, the problem apparently is if the, the, the rarity of the national team games for those broadcasters is that there's only two and then you have to wait for something. Again, it's not good from a storytelling point of view, but apparently it doesn't work. I, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Uh, I'm with you. I thought they'd love it, but apparently, um, maybe not. But, we, but we'll see. So, so something needs to be done there. And then, there is no harm in having some type of new um, tournament or event or whatever, you know, because well, if it works for everyone and it improves opportunities and it speaks to some of the problems for for, for that Jenny. I think perhaps rightly is trying to fix maybe um, some of the lesser lesser teams don't get enough opportunity to play in competitions. Maybe uh, they will have a chance. So one thing that is being mooted, and you have to go back to say 2017 when this idea first came um, appeared, was is a global nations league type of concept. Uh, and with the nations league, we have one in Europe and we have one in um, the Concacaf region in North America which is not the Gold Cup or the Euro. It isn't a friendly. It is a, um, a seeded league, as it were, based on quality. 
So divisions one, two, three, four, etc., uh, and and they culminating in a in a semi-finals for each band. So even the teams in the poorest level will have a final or a, or a trophy to win or something like that. On a global level, some people are saying, well, these things could feed into these mini global tournaments potentially. An idea. I don't know how appealing that will be to viewers or, or to or to broadcasters or sponsors, but but it might speak to some of the the the, the um, issues that Gianni and Co are trying to fix in terms of creating more co competitive games for, for for teams and get rid of friendlies. So that, that that's one. Another idea along the same lines is maybe these nations leagues will feed into a a one and done type of March Madness type of competition. And you and you'll have something. So not not as onerous as a World Cup, but something. Right. So, so and then also Gianni Infantino after the the, the um, FIFA Council meeting this week, he he did a press conference. He, again, it just shows how kind of loose this all is, and I don't understand why the rush for a vote. He said, "Well, look, we, we send us your ideas if you have any." So guys, send him your ideas. You know, if a man is asking for ideas, I don't know what he wanted to vote on in, in like two months' time. Yeah, that's very true. Speaking of votes, uh, Tarek, let's let's move it on to to Newcastle. So, Saudi Arabia are now ensconced firmly ensconced in the Premier League. This has happened, and immediately it seems as if the other Premier League clubs have moved to clip their wings somewhat. Can you tell us what happened this week? Yeah. So the Saudi takeover finally happened. We have the public investment fund. Sovereign Wealth Fund of the Saudi Arabia buying 80% of Newcastle. Premier League somehow are still insisting that they've got legally binding assurances that this public investment fund and the owners of Saudi Arabia are separate from the Saudi state, even though the de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, is chairman of the public investment fund, even though Yasser al-Rumayan, the governor of PIF, is also the chairman of Aramco, the state oil company of Saudi Arabia, even though the PIF is the vehicle of choice for the Saudi state's Vision 2030 plan to revolutionize the countries all outside, Premier League. So the deal goes through. Premier League clubs are up in arms. And again, this is out of self-interest, let, let's... You know, no one be in any doubt. This isn't about human rights or anything like that, as far as these clubs are concerned. This is the you know the venality of modern football in a way. So there, there is a new competitor in town, a new potential risk to the table, the, the top six Champions League places, or even every place is worth a few million. So they they said, you know, a group of the teams, 18 of them this week agreed, voted out of the 20 to tell the Premier League we need a moratorium on so-called related party transactions. And that means no sponsorships from any organisation or brand or company connected to the ownership of, of the teams. They didn't specifically say Newcastle, but this is completely with Newcastle in mind because everybody knows and remembers what happened with Manchester City. 2008, a different vehicle was created, fronted by the brother of the ruler of Abu Dhabi, 
Sheikh Mansour bin Zayed Al Nayyan, um, and suddenly a slew of Abu Dhabi UAE companies, led by Etihad, the airlines, is now sponsoring Manchester City for you know huge amounts of money. That cash enables City to start the journey that has seen it reach where it is today. Perennial Premier League champions, aspirant Champions League winner, one of the most powerful football teams in the world. Eventually, the idea is you throw enough money at a project, you, you'll probably be successful. Um, so for now, they've put this moratorium on. Funny enough, Manchester City was the only other team not supporting <laughs> this temporary ban. They abstained, didn't they? Hmm? They abstained, didn't they? They, they, ab- they abstained, apparently. On, on legal advice related to um, this uh, being um, illegal and, 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 and a cartel-like behaviour, but whatever. Um, now, three there's three weeks until the next Premier League shareholders meeting where this ban will be in place, where, where you know, they're asking for something um, perhaps more concrete to come into to force. I, I personally can't see how, how, how it can be policed. Uh, to be honest with you, well, especially once the Premier League has decided the PIF is not part of Saudi Arabia, so then how are you going to do the related party transactions? I think it's, it's a it's a misnomer. I think maybe uh, and correctly they they may come up with a um, a rule that says every sponsorship must be analysed for fair value, um, and then and then take it from there. But the horse, I think the horse has bolted a long time ago. I don't think the Premier League is, a partic- is particularly effective at, at um, governing its own rules. There is a case involving Manchester City related to alleged financial fair play abuses linked to the leaks in the, the, those football league documents that is now dragged on for three years yeah. without an outcome. In that time, Manchester City has won at least two league titles. So, you know, make for, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. And, and, and this shows it up, to be honest with you. Yeah. Last one for me on this, Tarek. I mean, Jage and I have talked at length over the last week and a half or so about this subject, and there's any number of reasons to be concerned with it. Um, kind of an open-ended one for you, but what is what is chiefly among your concerns here with what we're seeing? With, 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 with it, it's, it could be any state, but a state owning a, a football club in England, to me, seems off. You've got to remember where these teams, these are obviously global satellites and, and networks, etc., have, have made the Premier League a lot bigger than it was, or English football. These matches have beamed all around the world. But these clubs are community institutions, really. They're wedded into where they're from. Um, there's hundreds of years, hundred year plus of history here. It means something to the community. It's just being sold off like, you know, a piece of fish. Whoever you know who wants to buy it, that doesn't sit right with, with, with a lot of people. And, and and with this particular regime, you know. However, I hate to interrupt you, but the people who you're talking about, the, the community of Newcastle, it seems to sit very well with them. They seem to have fallen in line immediately. Which 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 gets to the heart of I guess modern football in a way. I think anything could be excused. Now I'd like to ask those people who are wearing those Saudi Arabian or Arabic um, garments and waving Saudi flags in in Newcastle ahead of that first game against Tottenham, what would it take 
Is there anything beyond the pale? Or if someone promises you they can buy you the best players in the world, you are willing to overlook anything? Yeah. You know, obviously they've been able to overlook the murder of our colleague, another journalist, yes. killed in the most gruesome way. His family still probably will never have the body back. That's not enough. Is, is, it, is it a numbers game? How many of these people need to be killed? Is that, is that something? What if it's someone closer to your family? Women's rights, does it matter? I mean, the thing I found particularly most shocking in all of this was the statement by, I think this organization called Newcastle Pride or something, the yes. LGBTQ um, supporter group, essentially waving this stuff through um, with the most mealy mouth comments linked to, oh, you know, maybe they'll see how we behave. You're not going to change Saudi Arabian behaviour, guys. It just, to me, it seems success on the football field trumps everything. And that, that's maybe where society has got to today. And it's bigger than a conversation about Newcastle and Premier League football for another day. But again, for me, this 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 is all this doesn't sit well the the other point is there's been people who've said oh well you didn't complain when they own uber and twitter and investments and it's, it's, it's complete non sequitur as far as i'm concerned right because this is so different these are these are companies they have no kind of um fan base not millions hundreds of thousands of Twitter fans, Uber fans in the street who no. now be trumpeting or parroting the Saudi line on human rights or, or on, on diplomacy or other policy, which is exactly what we've seen with Newcastle, not just now, for a year since, since, since the deal. This is completely different. They have now, um, somehow, they uh, say Saudi Arabia has now managed to get I guess a bunch of surrogates for their worldview or the worldview of yeah. this current government. That doesn't happen in any other sphere of life. I, I was particularly shocked because it's only eight years ago since Sunderland um, and the miners unions in Durham stood out and protested the appointment, not of a new owner, but of a new manager who had links to uh, far right polit political views in Italy. I actually thought there would be a little bit of pushback considering the, the working class and unionized nature of that area. Yeah, it, it's interesting you make, make that point. They were also complaining about, funny enough, Mike Ashley's work practices, the sports director, the previous owner. Now, if you look at the kafala system that is in place in Saudi Arabia for foreign laborers, for, for, for the people that essentially keep that country running, I would argue it is as worse, if not a lot worse, than what Mike Ashley has going one of his sports direct factories. But again, I just think people have been seduced by this um, this idea that they've been um, delivered from the tyrant that is this sports cheap sportswear manufacturer, and and and, re and replaced by by someone who's going to bring bring the good times. And you, and you have to have a degree of cognitive dissonance, right? You've got to forget all this bad stuff and just concentrate on the football. I I, I don't know. I think maybe when when some of the people go home and I don't, they know. Also, the victories are going to be a little bit tainted. Oh, one hundred. Even there's more. This, there's this stuff, but there's also, also what you just bought everything. There wasn't any plan. 
I think it's going to be even more than what Manchester City fans have got for the last decade because I think it's more out front and centre what this is, who they are. And, um, and I think everything, they, it will never be the same for Newcastle fans again. Um, I, think, uh, I think they think they got their club back, but I think their club has never been further away from them. I think that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if getting your club back means handing it over to, to you know, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, you know, maybe, maybe um, you know, my, my English isn't as good as what it ought to be because it doesn't mean that to me, getting something back, sending it thousands of miles away into the hands of a, you know, absolute monarch. It seems, seems very odd. Yeah, certainly does. Uh, fascinating stuff. Tarek, we always appreciate your time and talking through some of these bigger issues uh, affecting the sport. Thanks so much, man. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Nice to be with you again. Tarek Panja, love speaking with him. Fascinating. Yeah, both times I, we've gotten a chance to talk to him. I, I'm, I, if I could put together a short list of people I'd love to have a pint with and just, just, just talk about all these issues through, um, he's absolutely that. Uh, I hope people enjoyed that. Yeah, um, we do have to get out, but a couple of the things that he said did resonate with me specifically. I mean, we can talk about the biennial World Cup thing on another day, yeah, and, and a change to the calendar. Maybe we'll maybe we'll throw that idea out there to all of our listeners. I would love the Reddit page to begin submitting their ideas to Infantino for what changes need to be made, uh, to the uh, to the FIFA calendar. The animals will or do what that tournaments you want to see, whatever. Like the animals have no part, they've, they've spent enough time talking about how much I like WAP wet ass pitches so they'll they'll have plenty of time to talk about this um but last bit before we close out on the on the newcastle thing a couple things Tarek said are interesting to me first of which the uh the kind of subtle dig that he threw out there they they know they know and they they do do i think they do but they but like we talked about they they just want to win and right now that's the thing but that's not it's just not a moral you know it's not you're right. You can't I agree square that circle, you know? I agree with you. But I think that, you know, the thing I wonder about is if you're a club like Newcastle who's contending with relegation, like, is this, like, is, is the cat so out of the bag that this is your only avenue into glory? Is there well, any other way other than a, being bought by, I mean, I don't think it should have to be a nation, but some kind of multi-billionaire, like the New York Mets here in in baseball getting bought by steve cohen like is this is this newcastle or burnley or whoever is it their only avenue into greater success that that is the problem of the unfair and unequal distribution of wealth down the divisions i'm not just talking down the premier league down the divisions that has created this andrew like liverpool manchester united because of their success over the decades have been insulated and their commercial revenues even before tv revenues insulated them from all these things right and they've been allowed to continue doing that i always go back it's only five years ago they negotiated to get the top six to get the largest sum of the tv money you know that is a definite problem but you know there has to be uh you know the point about community-based clubs like the whole point of going to see Liverpool is that you're going to be on Anfield Road. You're going to be drinking in the Arkles. You're going to be going to the game. You're going to meet Scousers. It's a community-based thing. People have been going there for years. And that's what we football, we as football fans always say, that's what makes our game different. It's community-based. You know, I've been taking my boy there for 40 years to Newcastle, to St. James's Park. Then it does matter who you sell these clubs to. And it's, it's a shame that we've set up a, a economic 
uh, ecosphere where the only way to get ahead is to take these huge amounts of money from dubious actors. That is that is a problem. No, 100%. And it's beyond Newcastle United. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, fascinating stuff. I enjoyed this podcast greatly. The Champions League stuff, was it was another great Champions League week. Fascinating games coming up this weekend. Like you mentioned, of course, uh, we've got Liverpool and Manchester United. I'm on United. tape delay I'm on tape delay for United and Liverpool. Oh, oh, my. Good luck. No, it'll be fine as long as you don't try to... to you'll, you'll hire a plane. Where, yeah, the, where, where will you be exactly? Uh, I, I, I'm not telling you that. I'll be on Randall's Island for a soccer game. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it disconnect. Worked. You got to disconnect. Oh, my yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like you're not even there. A ghost. Even. That's the truth. Um, yeah, so you got that. El Clasico. This is a great, great weekend of soccer coming up. Our thanks to Tarek Panja for talking through some of the stuff with us. Fascinating conversation. And uh, we will be back, of course, next week with a look at the soccer weekend still to come. Hey, good stuff, man. To you, I say. Check you later, fun boy. I'll see you. Take care, my man. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 